The following audio is from Summit Church. For more information on Summit Church, visit www.summitonline.tv. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He built them wonderful and good, and then he filled them with animals and sea life and birds and plants. And last of all, this special creation made in his image, his people. And he wanted them to flourish in his vineyard. He wanted them to live and to enjoy and to breathe and to multiply and to subdue the earth. He he had this great plan of his creation bearing great fruit for his glory and oops, it didn't happen. They chose to rebel even after in Genesis 1 verse 31, it says God saw all that he had made and it was very good. It was very good, unfortunately, for a very short while. In order to try to remind his creation of the agreement they had as landlord and tenant. He wanted to remind them of the promise. He wanted to remind them of the purpose. So what God did over the course of the next thousands of years is he sent prophets, people to speak on his behalf, to try to remind them that, hey, this is not how I intended it to be. Jesus talks about those prophets back in Mark chapter 12, verses two through five. At the harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some fruit of the vineyard. As sharecroppers, it would have been very customary to give 25 to 30% of the fruits of that field. 25 to 30%. Doesn't say a specific piece here, but all throughout the Old Testament, our landlord asks for only 10. 10% of the first fruits. Far less than was the industry standard. Just a little, I think that's that's pretty cool. (laughs) But here's what the tenants did to the servants who the landlord sent. They seized him. They beat him. And they sent him away empty-handed. Yeah, we don't care if it's your vineyard. It's our fruit. We did the work. Get out of here. We don't want you here anymore. Then the landlord sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. It is unsubstantiated. But about a year and a half before Jesus spoke these words, uh, these same men that he's speaking to had John the Baptist arrested, and they did more than strike him on the head. They lopped the sucker off. Not sure that that's who Jesus is referring to, but if it is, and if there happened to be someone in this group who was a part of that shameful treatment of a prophet who just stood out in the wilderness on his own, telling people to repent for the kingdom of God is near, It'd be very stinging if that was who Jesus was referring to. He sent still another one, and that one, they killed him. He sent many others. Some of them they beat. Others they killed. Okay, this is kind of getting morbid, right? Kind of sad, but I, I want you to understand that Jesus is simply giving a history to the historians. God created the earth, told you to love it, live in it, subdue it. All he wanted was for you to honor and glorify him with it. You chose immediately to disobey that. You chose to live for yourself. God sent people to remind you of the agreement, the the way it was supposed to be. You treated them very horribly. And every time God tried to call you to repentance, you said, get out of here. Some of them you hurt, some of them you killed. The Old Testament only tells us of two prophets, and they were both minor prophets, 
Zechariah and Uriah, they were both killed. The Bible tells us that. So there were at least two who God did send to speak on his behalf, and they were literally murdered. Um, but the apocryphal writings, those that came hundreds of years later, tell that nearly every prophet that came faced some kind of shame, humiliation, or death. So Jesus would have been speaking the truth, and those listening would have understood it. God, the landlord, has one last-ditched effort. It's in Mark chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. He had one left to send. The landlord had a son whom he loved. Now, the writing there gets a little funny, right? You're like, a son? Did, did God have multiple sons? Was there... Lots of sons going on. No, that, that Hebrew phrase right there, or the Greek phrase, whom he loved, denotes one, an only child, a child that he loved dearly. God had one son, and he sent him last of all. Now, okay, take a breath, and we're listening to this conversation. The Pharisees are not stupid people. And what has Jesus just said? The father, the landlord, had one last-ditch effort, a son, a son he loved, an only son, and the landlord sent him. And for those who were even mildly willing to entertain it, they just heard this man, who they don't really care for, describe himself as the only son of God. Describe himself as equal to God. He is not holding back anything at this point. We're roughly four months from the cross here. And Jesus says, hey, I've danced around this long enough. The landlord sent his only son. Jesus says, of course, they will respect my son. This is, this is God. He's speaking on behalf. They, they have to respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. All of this is going to go to him. He is going to rule and reign over all of this. This is it. This is the one. Come. Come. Let's kill him. If we kill him, then the inheritance will be ours. The world that God made, the world that God desired to redeem from its own sin in such a massive way that he sent his one and only son, the people living in this world, only being asked by the landlord to give back a small portion for his glory, they say, let's kill him and we can have it all. We can take it all. Does that sound like humanity? Does that sound like the fallen world that we live in? See, you're sitting in church, right? Like you got up and came to church this morning. So you're going, oh, that's a travesty. That's terrible. No, we would never, ever, we cannot treat the Son of God this way, but to a broken world to the religious elite who everything they had was threatened by this one man. This is a logical conclusion. To us, it sounds ridiculous. You can't kill the son and think the father's gonna be okay with that and give you all the land. You can't think that that's actually how it's gonna work. To us, we're like, this is a messed up worldview. But that's to those who are evil and broken and far from God, they go, hmm, it's worth a shot. This guy's messing up everything we've got anyway. He's sitting here claiming to be the son of God. Let's kill him. Let's take care of him. 
So they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. Now remember, this is Jesus speaking, so he's speaking of what will come. And those listening are now starting to remember the conversations they've had in secret for about the last year of how they really need to get rid of this guy. How they need to find a reason to arrest him and try him and kill him, and now they've really been told, boy, we need to step it up. <laughs> we need to get him out of the way. There's an obscure passage in Mark chapter 15. So we're skipping forward to Friday morning, the, the day that Jesus was crucified. And you could read right over this, but I think it's very telling. Mark chapter 15, verses 9 through 11. So this is Pilate. He's the Roman governor who really was objective in this whole thing. Uh, the religious leaders, maybe some of the same ones who Jesus is speaking to on this day, the religious leaders have brought Jesus to Pilate early on Friday morning. They, they need to get a signed document so they can kill him, and the Roman occupier has to do that, and Pilate's really high up there. He reports directly to Caesar, and so Pilate goes, well, at least let me talk to him, and Pilate talks to Jesus, and Jesus doesn't really talk back, but they, they kind of have a little bit of banter, and Pilate goes, this guy's innocent, but he has, Pilate has a really cool insight into the religious leaders uh, when Pilate tried to release a murdering psychopath named Barabbas, when, when he said, I'll either give you Jesus, you can have him back, or I'll give you Barabbas, he assumed that they would take Jesus because they don't want an insane man back in their population, but they don't. In verse 9, he says, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate? Verse 10, knowing it was out of envy, you'd read right over that. But Pilate was very, very tied in, I think, to the motivation, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests, they stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. The motivation was they were jealous. They wanted the vineyard. They were the top dogs. They wanted it all. They wanted Jesus out of their way. It was out of envy that they killed the Son of God. It was out of envy that they condemned an innocent man. Jesus is going to uh, talk about the future now, uh, and anyone listening would have probably started to shake a little bit. Back in chapter 12, verses 9 through 12. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? A rhetorical question. But Jesus poses it nonetheless. What, what hey, guys, what do you think the owner's going to do if you kill his son? What do you think the response is going to be? You've already stated, or you assume, that, that you're going to get the whole thing, but what, what do you think will really happen? He will come, and he will kill those tenants, and he will give the vineyard to others. Is that a literal death? No, it's a spiritual one. But, see, for several thousand years, God had his chosen people, the Jews, who he had promised his inheritance to, and because they continually rejected him over and over and over, because they did ultimately kill his son, um, he said, I'm going to open it up to everybody now. And unless your last name's Goldstein, that's a really good thing. That's a, someone got it. Someone got it. Think about it for a minute. But anyway. <clears throat> he changed the game. And then Jesus says something that would incite the religious leaders of the day. Haven't you read this scripture? Of course they've read it, but he wants them to know how badly they misinterpreted it. 
The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord, or God, has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Present tense. The stone the builders rejected. You guys, you guys think you're the foundation. You guys think you're it. The stone that the builders have rejected me um, has actually become the capstone, and it's marvelous. Did you hear what Jesus is saying? What's happening right in front of your eyes is really awesome because I'm really awesome because I'm the son of God. The, the, the owner of the vineyard has sent his own son to do what? To divide sheep and goats. To open up an inheritance to many Verse 12, then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and they went away. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, Psalm 118. Pretty famous verse. Jesus changes the word capstone, though, and uses a very generic term there. It can be one of three things, okay? It can be the cornerstone. Maybe some of your Bibles even say that, not capstone. They say the cornerstone. The cornerstone in construction is important because it's the first stone that's laid. If you get it square, then the rest of your lines will be good. Jesus is the first stone that's laid. If you read here, the NIV translates it capstone. That's a fun one. Think of Greek and Roman architecture. Lots of pillars, right? If you, if, you've, if you can picture Greek and Roman architecture, lots of pillars. The capstone was the flat stone that went on top of the pillars, like roof, to give them their structure and their stability, to hold it all together. Jesus is not only the cornerstone, he is the capstone. It can also be translated the keystone. Roman architecture, they, they really developed arches. And they stand freely with no support once the keystone, the last stone, has been placed in. It's really a marvel of engineering, well ahead of their times. And Jesus says, I'm all of these things. Now, he didn't read the next few verses out of Psalm 118. He just quoted the one that they needed to hear. But I want us to see it all because I want us to see the response to this. The response to this truth that Jesus is the cornerstone, the capstone, the keystone. Psalm 118, verses 22 to 24. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. I love that Jesus changes it and goes, and now it is marvelous to see. What was written hundreds of years ago has now come to completion, and it is now, present tense, marvelous to see. Verse 24, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and let us be glad in it. Was that the response of the Pharisees to this good news? No, exact opposite, right? Pharisees tried to conspire to arrest him and kill him. This is the day the Lord has made. We should rejoice and be glad in it. I wonder, I wonder what it takes in the mind of Jesus to know that his rejection, his betrayal, his arrest, and his death will actually bring victory and celebration. It is, it is not shocking to Jesus that he's not going to make it through this. He's already said three times, he'll say it once more, that he is going to be arrested, he's going to be tried, he's going to be crucified for you and for me. He knows what's coming. And this is the day the Lord has made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. So I wonder, church, what is your simple response to this parable. 
For those in the room who are somewhat like the Pharisees, and I mean it like this, you exist in this world and you are going to take from it all that you can. God maybe made it, maybe didn't in your mind, but there's some good stuff here and you're going to live it and live it well. And then one day you're going to breathe your last and you're going to deal with eternity and the consequences of that. This parable does not bring celebration to your mind. You probably feel somewhat condemned and definitely not excited about the prospects. Then there's others who see this world as, as God has created it so that he might receive the glory. And, and you stumble and you fall, but you do your best to make sure that, that the way you live is, is for him and for his renown and for his namesake. And you hear this and you go, you know what? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you did what it took for me to have relationship with God. That you came as the son of God and you laid down your life to pay a price that I no longer have to pay for myself. But through grace, by faith, I can be with you. And there will be an, an amount of rejoicing. And yet there's then a third group who hears this and you go, yep, yeah. This is a wrecked up world. <laughs> and it needs Jesus real bad. And I'm gonna live my life trying to bear fruit so that others might know the joy that I have in him but I hear this story and I get excited. Not sure where you fall in that. If I were to be very candid with you, I'm probably in that second group. But I want you to know that this good news, this really, I mean, kind of morbid, sad story is good news. It's hope. For those who hear it and understand. Do you remember a couple weeks ago when Jesus, Jesus in the parable explained why he was taught, teaching in parables? Because there's going to be some that see it, but they never perceive it. And there's going to be others that hear it, but they never understand it. Remember that? I think that's the difference in how you respond to this today whether it's with fear and trepidation, whether it's with kind of a neutral whatever, or whether it's with celebration, it's whether or not you understand what you're hearing. And if I can make it overly simple, what Jesus is saying here is not something that should necessarily be mourned. It is something that should be celebrated. That he, the stone that the religious elite rejected, has become it, has become all we need has become more than enough. And therefore, this is the day that the Lord has made. And I'll rejoice. And I'll be glad in it. Because regardless of what you're walking through, and I don't want to minimize it for anyone in here, through faith in Jesus we get to become co-heirs with Christ of all this. And that's good news. That is good news. Ephesians, as the band comes back up here, Ephesians 2, verses 3 through 5. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following desires and our thoughts. I, just, I read that so that we understand that we're not that far removed from the Pharisees. 
Like the rest, we are by nature objects of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. Even if you feel like you're a broken mess, he's made us alive in Christ when we were dead, for it is by grace, nothing you've done, it's unmerited favor. It is by grace that you have been saved. So today, um, as we respond, communion in the back of the rooms, just remember that amazing sacrifice of the Son of God for you, for the sins of this world. I want you to remember that. We're going to people up front that would love to pray with you. Anything you got going on, anything you're walking through, that, that Jesus is enough for that. We'd love, love to pray with you. But my heart, my prayer, simply this, that you hear and understand this message today, this good news, and that it would produce in you celebration, hope, joy, the kind of stuff that Jesus brings. And all of it is through faith. Hearing this and believing that it's true, that he is true. Love to walk with you through that. Love for God to move and do that in your life. So Father, do just that through your Holy Spirit. We love you. We love you so much. And we do celebrate you today because you foiled the most evil plans of some of the most evil men. You foiled them. They thought they'd won. They thought they had the victory, but no, Jesus, the victory is yours. And we get to rejoice in that today. We get to sit in that today. We get to celebrate that today. You are so good. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand. Let's respond to him.